We've read this entire prayer now together nine times. And certainly you've begun to notice the many ways that Jesus emphasizes important ideas through repetition. And we see in this prayer a repeated desire and a request by the Lord Jesus for the unity, the oneness of his people. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That is a product of oneness of unity and then a long section verse 20 i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that's us verse 21 that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe verse 22 the glory that you've given me i've given to them that they may be one even as we are one i in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one And so through sheer repetition alone, we see how important this concept of oneness, of unity is to the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul certainly was a champion of unity. Romans 15, 5 and 6, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may glorify with one voice the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our very worship can only be accomplished in the midst of unity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? To be divided over the matters which should unite us is to dishonor Christ, and in essence to divide the church, and thereby dividing Christ. Paul said it very poignantly in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12, With great heart, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds us, here's the phrase, together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Our salvation in Christ should urge us, it should motivate us to selfless unity in the church. How often Paul called for unity and for love and for harmony, many, many other places in his letters. But really all Paul was doing was expressing the wishes and the desires of the Lord Jesus Christ, as already seen in this chapter in John 17. As a matter of fact, unity is the fact of salvation which overwhelms and trumps all other differences between us. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all, what? One in Christ Jesus. It overwhelms all differences. How great would it have been to witness the early church in Jerusalem in those days This unity manifested itself in tremendous love for one another? Acts 4.32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And it goes on to say that there were, there were none among them who were needy, because they were of one heart, one mind. Now that brings us to John 17. And as we've been studying John 17 from a topical viewpoint, seeing that this amazing prayer has really so many facets and features, we've specifically been examining objective evidence for our assurance of salvation from sin. That when you came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, by His grace, by His mercy, when you repented of your sins 
as being paid for by the blood of Christ, that when you acknowledge that you needed forgiveness for having violated the holy will of God in every way possible, when you humbled yourself by bringing absolutely nothing to the Lord but your own sin, disgusting depravity, and rebellion, and when he forgave you, that your new life in Christ is now permanent and nothing can take it away. And we've seen this in John 17 over and over again. And so in each message, what we're doing is building one more piece of evidence to build this airtight case that salvation is always, always, always a permanent transaction. That nothing in all creation can undo the fact that you've been justified and now God has exchanged your filthy life for the perfect life of Christ and has poured his wrath on his son at the cross instead of on you. And so today, our objective evidence for our blessed assurance is found in the church's unity, that we can have assurance because of the church's unity. And I want to structure our time together by asking you a series of questions about what you believe. What do you believe about the unity of the church? Because I think you're going to find as we're walking through this, your heart is going to be challenged because the subject of unity is very personal. It hits us at a very, very much a, a heart level. And I would suggest that if you love and receive and cherish the truths and the implications of the church's unity, you should enjoy full assurance of your salvation. And I would, on the other hand, also suggest that if the truths of the church's unity cause you angst, frustration, and maybe even anger, then you should test yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. So we'll ask a series of questions based here in the text of John 17. The first one will be more introductory, but the first question is, do you believe that unity is based in truth? Do you believe that unity is based in truth? Now, we need to go to this introductory question before we go to more detailed references in John 17, because it's important to understand the foundation, the basis, the cornerstone for unity. The Apostles' Creed states, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the unified universal church. And unfortunately, the Roman Catholic religion has now forever ruined that word. They've now associated the term Catholic with a false gospel of salvation by works. So what is the Roman Catholic view of unity? Well, their view of unity is based on hierarchy, on church structure. It's an external structure as they present themselves as the only true church of Jesus Christ. But that religion can't be the church of Jesus Christ. They deny the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They promote a system of good works to continue achieving salvation supposedly. They count church authority as equal to biblical authority. They place people in bondage of never knowing whether salvation is completed or not. They fool people, on the other hand, into thinking that as long as they keep confessing sin to a priest, that their eternal souls are saved. They've turned the Lord's table into this bizarre occultic ritual in which the bread and wine are literally turned into the body and blood of Christ, thus crucifying Christ again. They encourage the praying praying to others besides God. They Encourage the sharing of the role of redemption between Christ and his mother, Mary, which is bizarre. The Bible never says that. And certainly, they lift the Pope up as the final spiritual authority over and above Christ, over and above the Word of God. But why would they say they're the true church unified? It's because of their organization, their structure. So, the Roman Catholic religion proves to us that organizational structure can't be the basis for unity. It can't be. Or how about this basis? How about a compassionate wish to reach across doctrinal divides to link arms for the sake of unity, otherwise known as ecumenism or ecumenicalism? The modern ecumenical movement began in the early 1900s as an effort really to get several denominations working together for the sake of missions. And it was a noble thought at first, and out of this grew the World Council of Churches in the United States, the National Council of Churches. But many began to see that for the sake of unity, the gospel itself was being watered down, and now truth was compromised. And so another organization came about, known as the National Association of Evangelicals, formed in 1942, to link arms then based only on truth. There can't be unity 
There cannot be unity among those who deny the basics of the biblical gospel in the name of let's just all get along. And so a mere desire to be unified at all costs, that can't be the basis for unity. So what is the basis for unity? It's truth. Truth. Both the Roman Catholic version and the ecumenical version of unity are based on external organization but unity is more accurately based on internal spiritual realities on truth that is internal and we could spend all morning just on this but just briefly unity is based in several important truths it's based first of all in the truth of the indwelling holy spirit this is internal 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Which answers the charismatic heresy of baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to salvation. Who is baptized in the Holy Spirit? All who are saved. That, that is the very definition of salvation. In, in large part. So unity is based on the indwelling Holy Spirit. Unity is also based on the truth of sound doctrine and belief. The truth of sound doctrine and belief, that's internal. This is what Ephesians 4 is speaking of when he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What's the point? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Sound doctrine, the body of what we believe and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Sound doctrine based in the simple observation of the text of Scripture, taking it literally and at face value, not in speculation, not in human opinion, not even in theology, but in the Bible. So unity is based in sound doctrine. Unity is also based in the truth of submission to Christ. It's based in the truth of submission to Christ. Ephesians 1.22 And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Why is our eldership at Grace Bible Church unified? We have always been unified because we all agree on one thing that none of us is the head of the church. That Christ is. And therefore we go to the word to find out what Christ says. That creates unity. Paul summarized the basis for our unity in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 3, that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Great summary of unity, and that's internal and so the true bond of the church consists of the invisible internal realities of our faith as given in Scripture alone. And listen, historically, attempting to base unity on any other foundation is always associated with abandoning the biblical gospel every time. So the first question, do you believe that unity is based in truth? If you believe that, you are on your way to assurance of salvation. Let me give you a second question. Do you believe unity is the call of the church? Do you believe unity is the call of the church? Verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. Again in verse 22. We have received the glory of Christ that they may be one even as we are one. And so we see... First, the clear will of God that the church in some fashion reflects the very unity of God himself. The oneness enjoyed and experienced between God the Father and God the Son and by extension, of course, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the oneness and the unity of the triune God, this is a vast and really limitless subject for exploration but we might consider just a couple of ways specifically how the church is to mirror the unity, the oneness of Jesus and his Father. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Their oneness is eternal. It's eternal. There was never a time when the Father and the Son were not one, were not unified. Now, the church, of course, had a starting point. In fact, more broadly than just the New Testament church, the people of God in general had a starting point. 
But from that point forward, our unity is eternal. Whatever differences that true and regenerate believers in Christ have, you get two choices. They'll either be worked out here or they'll be worked out in the halls of heaven. But they will be worked out because our unity is eternal. We all possess the Holy Spirit. We all possess a heavenly inheritance. The oneness between Jesus and his Father is loving. It's loving. Verse 26, very end of this prayer. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You you cannot separate unity from love. It's not that God the Father and God the Son have agreed upon a long doctrinal statement upon which they now base their unity. Their unity is loving. There is tremendous, unmeasurable love between God the Father and God the Son. And of course, in the church, we're called countless times in the New Testament to love one another in our thoughts, love one another in our words, love one another in our deeds. The topic of love in the New Testament comes up over 300 times. Jesus spoke of love, love one another, John 13. Paul spoke of love, love one another, Romans 12. The writer of Hebrews says, stir up one another to love, Hebrews 10. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In other words, it's not just external. And John said in 1 John 3, 11, and many, many other places, love one another. So you have Jesus, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, Peter, John. It's all over the place. And we're to reflect that Love between God the Father and God the Son. The oneness of the Father and the Son is submissive. It's submissive. The Son of God is always doing His Father's will. He is fully equal to God the Father, fully God, and yet simultaneously subordinates Himself to the perfect will of His Father. In the church, lack of submission always works against unity. It always does. We've said it many times that the Christian life is characterized by submission. That, that's what a Christian is, is a submitted person. When workers don't submit to their authority, when Christians don't submit to the government, when children don't submit to parents, when wives don't submit to husbands, when husbands don't submit to Christ, when shepherds don't submit to Christ, when sheep don't submit to shepherds, now unity is compromised and, and churches are cracked and their foundation is shaken. And so we're to reflect the submission between God the Son and God the Father. And just one more comparison, the oneness between God the Son and God the Father is enjoyable. It is enjoyable. In verse 5, Jesus speaks in glowing terms of the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The pure enjoyment, the pure ecstasy of God the Son in being in the presence of God the Father. This is what characterizes their unity. And how must have the father welcomed his son home when he ascended into heaven? What a day that must have been. In the church, we have a biblical word which really encompasses our enjoyment of one another. It's called fellowship. We love the fellowship. Many churches name themselves the fellowship. The early church, Acts 2.42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship The disciples on the road to Emmaus, after having been taught the word of God by the resurrected Son of God, they commented to one another, weren't our hearts on fire? Weren't they burning within us as he spoke the word to us? That's fellowship. It's unity that's enjoyable. So unity is the call of the church. It absolutely is. And this is lived out and expressed in the local church. And this is hard for us. Because our culture cultivates and encourages selfishness at every level possible. I mean, what is social media basically all about? It's all about me, right? And yet, you're not to take lightly the church of Jesus Christ. When someone does things which works against unity, we're working against the will of the Father, working against the prayer of Christ. What is it that might work against unity and be a harm to the church? I'll just give you a short list. Ignoring sin. Ignoring sin and wickedness and letting it fester in the church. 
The church at Thyatira ignored sexual immorality in their midst and Jesus himself threatened to come against them. Failing to honor one another threatens unity. We honor each other because every Christian was chosen by God to be saved and ultimately will reign alongside Christ in the new world. Failing to serve in the church at some level, this works against unity. Failing to serve, that is letting others carry your load. Failing to give to the church at some level, again, letting others carry your load. I I have the opportunity sometimes to interact with other elder boards from other churches who are looking for pastors, and inevitably the subject of salary comes up, and I always tell them uh, this profound truth, you get what you pay for. It's really that simple. Failing to work to develop deep relationships, that works against unity. What is a deep relationship? Well, we have a definition in the Bible, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. You're at that level with somebody. Dividing ourselves by social class or wealth, that works against unity. Multiple times in the New Testament, the rich are told not to look down on the poor. Those of a higher social status, so to speak, are not to look down those who are lower. Taking revenge on one another. That works against unity, either directly or more subtly through coldness and harshness. You, you might say, oh, revenge would never happen in the church. Are you kidding? I hear about that multiple times a year. It's just more subtle because we've learned Christianized ways to take revenge. Now, I could go on with this list, but it would be a lot easier for you to simply read Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. That's where I got this list. Which is, by the way, the basis for our membership covenant at Grace Bible Church. This is why Satan loves gossip and slander. Because it destroys unity. This is why Satan loves sexual temptation and immorality. Because it destroys unity. This is why Satan loves lack of involvement. Because it destroys unity. This is why Satan loves bitterness and anger. Because it destroys unity. This is why Satan loves unsubmissive spirits. Because it destroys unity. Remember, when Satan can accurately and precisely divide the body of Christ, who's he really going after? He's going after Christ. Simple question for you to ask yourself. Is your life... And your interaction with the local church working toward unity or away from unity. Those are really the only two options. Toward or against. Most definitely unity is the call of the church. Let me give you a third question. Do you believe unity is manifested in joy? Do you believe unity is manifested in joy? Verse 13 Jesus says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wishes for his joy to be fulfilled, literally completed, filled up among all who believe in him. Now, just a little side note here. If you have not been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ yet, this is where you may start to get a little bit lost. Because if you haven't entered into the fellowship of the church through salvation, you can't really experience the joy of true unity. The only way you can experience unity with a local church is when the entire local church has rejected the gospel. Then you're in unity with their rebellion. So hopefully this will be a good litmus test for you to encourage you to come to saving faith and receive forgiveness for your sins. Because there is no joy outside of Christ. There can't be. So when Jesus says... These things I speak in the world. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of what he's just said in John 13, 14, 15, 16, or 14, 15, and 16 in particular, because a major theme in his address in those three chapters has been the abiding love of God, that now joy comes in being preserved by God in salvation in total and complete allegiance and devotion to Christ. In other words, you cannot experience complete joy in Christ without assurance of salvation. If you're not completely certain, then there's always that nagging doubt. Let me put it this way. If you're driving across the railroad tracks and not paying attention and the little railroad track uh, barriers didn't work and you look to your right and see that you're about three feet away from a train, at that moment, assurance of salvation becomes pretty important because now you must be assured but put it in our lives, you can't experience Christian joy, you can't experience Christian peace 
unless you are a Christian, first of all, and secondly, assured of your salvation and certain of your heavenly future. And so that's obvious. But what I want to show you here, that the idea of joy as it's developed in the New Testament, as it is right here in John 17, there is a clear connection between joy and unity. That these two go together. The Apostle Paul implored the Philippian church. Philippians 2 verse 2. Complete. It's the same word Jesus uses translated fulfill. Complete my what? Joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. The joy of the Apostle Paul. As the apostolic leader of the Philippian church. Would be most fulfilled as they were united in mind. And in love and soul and spirit. The Apostle John, writing to a particular local church in 3 John, he says in verse three, verses 3 and 4, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The believers in this church were unified in the truth, except for one, Diotrephes who likes to put himself first because he thought he was special. And he was the one guy taking joy away because he destroyed unity. John said that he would come and he would publicly deal with diatrophies because he was disrupting unity based in the truth of God's word and obedience to that truth. How about Hebrews thirteen seventeen? Church members are commanded... Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The most joyful shepherds are the ones who have joyful sheep, and joyful sheep come from making your shepherds joyful, and we just keep doing this until Christ returns. Unity is manifested in joy. And if I could put it this way, On the flip side, you cannot have joy if you are a disruptor of unity. You can't. You know who the most joyful people are? People who say, okay, I'll do whatever is asked. They're filled with joy. The Apostle Paul gave a simple formula for unified joy in that relationship between the sheep and the shepherds. He said in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, And they're over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This is a formula for joy. Shepherds who labor, admonish, and work. Sheep who respect, esteem, and are at peace with one another. That's joy. Do you believe that unity is based in truth? Do you believe that unity is the call of the church? Do you believe unity is manifested in joy? If the answer is yes to all three of those, you are on your way to assurance. Let me give you a fourth question. Do you believe unity is proof of your faith? Do you believe unity is proof of your own faith? Look with me at verse 21. Believing that unity is proof of your own faith. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. This is, this is overly repetitive to a certain degree just to make a point. But the end point here is that they may be in us. You cannot be categorically unloving and uncaring about the church of Jesus Christ and somehow claim to be in Christ and to be in the Father. Those two cannot coexist. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't love the church. In fact, I guess this is as good a time as any to remind ourselves of precisely who the church is. Because in our culture today, the distinction of what the church is has been utterly erased. If you ask the average person on the street, what is the church to be about? They'll say, well, they're to be about social justice and doing good for the poor and helping people. They've completely lost touch with the reality of the Bible. Here's the church. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of all who have been regenerated and repented and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is the church. The primary reason that we gather together, the gathering of the church is to edify and build up the believers, not to pander to the world, not to attempt to woo or entertain the world with anything except the presentation of the gospel of Christ. 
I have read more articles than I care to remember on, quote, designing worship for the lost. Why is that stupid? Because the lost, by definition, cannot worship. Worship is for the saved. The lost may view it and may ask the question, how may I participate in that? And the answer to that question, of course, is through the Lord Jesus Christ and through repentance. Yes, the gospel should be presented and learned and grafted into our hearts continually. And certainly the lost welcomed and called to repentance. But we're never to forget that we gather first as the people of God. I've used this illustration before, but it works so powerfully in my own heart. To see at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, the fact that at one point they did away with the visitor parking spaces and instead created parking spaces close to the building for the members of the church who had been there the longest. I think that says a lot. I don't know about you, but if I'm looking for salvation and I need Christ, I'm willing to walk a couple blocks. We are infinitely more obligated to one another than we are to those who are still rejecting Christ. This is where the evangelical church in America has often lost its way, these feeble attempts to be attractive to the world. I've had the opportunity recently to exchange some very interesting emails with a pastor of a village church in Kenya. Because of persecution, he can't tell me where they are, where they meet. He's been listening to our sermons online and then passing on that information to his own little flock. He sent me a picture of his church. I've made comments about churches meeting under a tree. Their church meets under a tree. And in one email, he mentioned their outreach efforts. And because his region is inundated with Muslims, they don't invite the lost to church. Because when they do that, people get hurt. And there's great persecution. Instead, they share the gospel with their neighbors. And to paraphrase his words, When they believe that Jesus is the Redeemer, then we invite them to our fellowship. That is sound ecclesiology, remembering that the church is made up of the redeemed. Listen, and I cannot say this in strong enough terms, if you see yourself as different or above or not fully part of the church of Jesus Christ because you know better and you're special, beware and take heed that your faith is probably not real because the true believer delights in unity. The true believer wants to link arms with others at every level. So how do you know that you're unified with the body of Christ, that you are in the faith? How do you know this? Oh, the Apostle John would say, I'm so glad you asked because this is his specialty He said in 1 John 2, 9 and 10, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Do you love the people of God? Then have assurance. John said in 1 John 3, 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Chapter 3, verse 14 of 1 John. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Somebody says, I I love Christ. I just don't love the church. Then you don't love Christ. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God. The very next verse. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Four verses later, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Four verses after that, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Here's the argument. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If you don't love the church, it means God has not loved you. The very next verse, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not, who, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If the Apostle John were here, he would be saying, can I talk about this more? Because he loved that topic. We want to please and obey our Lord, right? We want to. And as one of your shepherds, I'd like to be very honest with you and perhaps help us as a body 
be more reflective of the love that Jesus Christ has for us? When Jesus was on earth, he loved at basically three levels. He loved at a general public level for any who came to him, any who that he was, whom he was teaching. He loved at a specific relationship level with his 12 disciples, and then he loved at a very specific relationship level with Peter, James, and John. This is a very important pattern for us because by so doing, Jesus very clearly avoided several extremes which would would have hurt people unnecessarily. He avoided, first of all, the extreme of no close relationships. He was very, very close with Peter, James, and John, very close with the 12 as a whole, and close with those with whom he ministered. One of the questions that we ask all of you when you come to shepherding visits with our elders is, with whom are you in a deep, meaningful relationship at Grace? And if you say, I've been here four years and I have no deep relationships, we've got to fix that. There's so many opportunities to draw near to one another. So many we have. He also avoided another extreme. He avoided the extreme of exclusive relationships. Exclusive relationships. Yes, he was close to Peter, James, and John, and yes, the other nine knew it, but they, he didn't ever make them feel like they were less because of that. In fact, the 12 are always listed in groups themselves in which they, each of them had men with whom they were the closest. The order of the listing changes in the gospel and in Acts, but the groupings remain the same. So everyone had their sort of inner circle and then slightly larger circle. If all your relationship needs are met by one person and you see no need to include anybody else, that is not the spirit of unity in the body of Christ. Just to be perfectly honest with you. He also avoided the extreme of successive primary friendships. I'm avoiding the term best friends. Best friends is a sinful concept that needs to be left on the elementary school playground. He avoided the extreme of successive primary friendships. What do I mean by this? Jesus never gave the impression to Peter that he was his main friend while simultaneously beginning to cultivate his relationship with James, then moving on from Peter, leaving Peter in the dust to James, while then cultivating his relationship with John and leaving in his wake a trail of hurt of person after person after person who thought they were number one it turns out they weren't. You cannot be everyone's primary friend, nor should you attempt to give that impression. What do we have in the body of Christ? We have the richness of a wide variety of relationships available to you. And I understand that sometimes you wish you were closer to somebody than to somebody else, but then there's somebody else who wishes they were closer to a person, so be that friend. Be the friend for them. And if I could encourage you, if you wish you had more time with somebody, you have all of eternity. Just go ask them, could I reserve a thousand years with you at some point in the future? And you can. Engage at the heart level. If I could put it this way, the minute we stop preaching on love, you should not want to be a part of this church. And the minute you stop loving one another, I don't want to be a part of this church. That is what makes our unity. And that's what proves your faith. You know what I love about new believers? Is how excited they are. And they don't even know what they're saying. They say, I've met this person and this person. I've been in this Bible study. And this person is so loving and kind. And I can't believe this. And this woman, she baked for me and helped me when I was sick. And I have these new friends. And I just love them so much. Translation, you're saved because you love the body. Do you believe that unity is proof of your own faith? Let's get broader. Here's another question. Do you believe unity is proof of the Christian faith? Now we're going to get theological. Is, it unit, is unity proof of the Christian faith? We've seen that unity is proof of your own personal faith, but what about proof of faith itself? Verse 21, once again, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's unity and proof of the Christian faith put together. It is our unity in love which is the attraction to the world. That's why we don't want to be a part of a church that is not loving because it's, it's giving the wrong message. The, the New Testament gives numerous beautiful pictures of this loving unity. 
this unified people of God. The church is pictured as the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. And this picture is used to demonstrate how we're to work together for the gospel. Romans 12, that as in one body we have many members. And he goes on to speak of how we function together. The church is the body of Christ. The church is pictured as the household of God. Ephesians 2, 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 1 Peter 2, 5, You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. 1 Timothy three fifteen. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. When I do counseling with families in which there's chaos in the family, the, one of the first things we do is I talk to dad and husband and I say, you need to create peace in your family. You need to create unity in your household. Picture, the church is pictured as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's you, that's us. And the church is pictured as the temple of God. Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Listen, these pictures are important for your assurance. What do I mean by that? If the church is the body of Christ, then his body will not be drawn and quartered by some of you not making it to heaven. If the church is the household of God, then the household will not be divided by some abandoning the house. If the church is the bride of Christ, the bride will not be dismembered by parts of the bride not attending the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if the church is the temple of God, the temple will not be weakened and marred and pockmarked by missing stones and pillars. All of those pictures guarantee that all who are in Christ will make it home. And to go back to Jesus' statement in verse 21 that the unity of the church is proof of faith to the whole world, we remember in our very first message in this series that Jesus uses the term world in a variety of ways. And in this case, since the world is going to believe, world consists of future believers who by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will come to desire to be a part of the body of Christ, of the household of God, of the bride of Christ, and of the temple of God. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, the new convert to Christ does not just desire Christ, but innately, inherently, instinctively desires to be part of the body, part of his household, part of his bride, and part of his temple. That makes complete sense. Do you believe that unity is based in truth? It's the call of the church. It's manifested in joy. Proof of your own faith. Proof of the Christian faith. And now we can make our main point with one more question. Do you really believe, do you believe that unity is proof of assurance of salvation? Proof of assurance of salvation. And we see this here in a a stunning little word. In verse 23, Jesus now goes beyond our present reality. All this time we've been talking about what's happening right now in the church. But in verse 23, he goes to a future reality. I in them and you in me, there's unity, that they may become perfectly one. Perfectly one. Now, this has the idea of a completed product of all the church being together. Is the church perfectly one right now? No, it's not. Because not all the elect have been saved. There are, as it were, missing parts of the body, missing members of the household, a not completely ready bride, and missing stones in the temple. And so we are not perfectly one. But let's consider the future reality of the church made perfectly one, all present, all accounted for, and all perfected in holiness and sanctification. And this is going to have a massive implication for your assurance. Revelation chapter 5 gives us this picture of the heavenly throne room, and there's a specific time frame for this. It's the heavenly throne room after the rapture and resurrection of the saints and before the great tribulation. And so we see the angels and the elect church singing a new song to Jesus Christ. 
Revelation 5, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. Just listen, because we'll just consider one phrase. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a people their kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What's the reason for their worship? Jesus Christ has purchased by his blood people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. This is a key phrase in Revelation. It happens six more times. This is taken from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel uses a threefold formula of peoples, nations, and languages six times. And this is very much a precursor to the Revelation. Very, very important in Daniel. Because Daniel 7.14 announces that all these peoples, nations, and languages will be ruled by Jesus Christ. Now, without assigning any overly technical uh, uses to these words, let's think about these distinctions for a minute. Every tribe. Well, a tribe is a large family unit, generally traceable back to the father of that tribe, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, in our church, we have the tribe of Moore, the, the tribe of Basel, these overly productive families that just keep going. So we understand that. But in the ancient Near East, the basis for this use of tribe was based on a, a three-leveled family structure. You had the family at the, at the base level, that was the nuclear family, plus all the in-laws that were living under one roof. Then you had at the next level a clan a group of related nuclear families forming a village, and then you had the tribe was a group of clans all descended from the same progenitor. So that's a tribe. What about every language? Well, this is obvious. This is grouping people based on common languages. By the way, this tells us that out of all the peoples scattered at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, every one of them will have representatives in the kingdom. And how about people? This is a word that means any group of people with common cultural bonds and in a specific geographic territory without really reference to a genetic connection of any kind. And then you get to nation. That's where it's more genetic. This speaks more to ethnic origin. It's the Greek word ethnos, sometimes translated Gentile, meaning everybody who's not a Jew. Sometimes it's translated nation, simply meaning a group of people with common ancestry in general. What does this mean? It means that any way you can figure out how to divide and categorize the peoples of the earth, God has set apart redeemed individuals from all of them. And let me give you an example. I think it'll make this hit closer to home. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we find that there were Jews from many other nations. They were products of the dispersion going all the way back to 722 BC, but also certainly... They had made many proselytes in the last 700 years, people of other ethnicities becoming Yahweh worshipers, Jews by adoption, so to speak. So, for example, let's say that at Acts chapter 2, at the event of Pentecost, there was a proselyte Jew named Bozan. Bozan is a Jewish convert from Parthia. In other words, he was an ancient Iranian. He was Persian. Bozan was a very common Parthian name. He heard the gospel from the apostles in the language of Parthian, which is now an extinct language, by the way. So who does Bozan belong to? Well, he's an adopted part of all the tribes of Israel, according to Old Testament law concerning Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh. He's a part of the language group of those who speak Parthian. He's a part of the peoples who would come to be known by several names, including the Kurdish peoples. And he is of the nation of Parthia. And since those listening to the gospel proclaimed by the apostles repented and came to Christ, this means Bozan is representing the tribes of Israel, the language of the Parthians, the peoples of the Kurds, and the nation of Parthia. Revelation 5 proves something. Listen carefully. It proves that God has already decreed that from every possible angle, every possible way you can organize humanity, God will have his elect. Here's the crux of the whole thing. If it is possible for you to lose your salvation, 
then it is also possible for everyone in your people groups to lose their salvation, which means it's possible for this revelation of this prophecy of Revelation 5.9 to fail, to fall, and for some people group to not make it. Now, here's where it gets fun. Because the immediate response of the one who says that you can, in fact, lose your salvation, their response is to instinctively say, well, God will make sure that that doesn't happen. Exactly. Checkmate. The sovereignty of God will, in fact, make sure that every people group is represented, which means that if God must ensure that some Christians are saved, In the end, he must logically ensure that all Christians are saved in the end. There is no other option. Game, set, match. Absolutely, the church's unity is based in truth. It's based in the call of the church. It is manifested in joy. It is proof of your own faith. It is proof of the Christian faith. And it is your assurance of salvation. Because our unity and your love for the church demonstrates that you were in Christ. Can I give you one last exhortation concerning our unity? One simple statement. Here it is. If all of this is the case, and we've proven that it is, then let's rejoice in it, and let's act like it. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you for the unity of the church. We bless you and thank you for the fact that we do not walk through this difficult life alone, but we have all of those who are saved by the blood of Christ. How delightful it is, Lord, that even when our sometimes our own biological family may reject Christ, even for all eternity, and how painful that is, you have given us new mothers and new fathers and new sisters and new brothers, new sons, new daughters. That we who sit here, Lord, all who are redeemed, And I'm not sure we can even fathom this thought that in 10 billion years we will still be together in fellowship. How glorious that is. And I would pray for a man or a woman here who may be questioning their salvation because they don't love the church. They don't love God's people. They do think they're special. They think they're above. And perhaps this would be the moment you would humble them to come to the cross where the rest of us are already congregated and to join all who have come to Christ by faith. And I would pray for the believers amongst us, Lord, who perhaps to our shame have not always acted in a way that is conducive to unity. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves, to be loving, to be kind, to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, so that the world may believe, and so that the unbeliever watching our lives would see the fruit of Christ and the fruit of Christian love and desire Christ as a result. We thank you and we praise you for the assurance of our salvation that when our heart beats for the final time, when our lungs take in one last breath, and when our eyelids flutter closed one last time, that we go home with a smile on our face because our assurance, our assurance was in Christ and was complete. No doubt. And so we look forward to seeing you fully assured now for a reunion later. And we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.